Some years ago, a teacher in a fifth grade class asked his students if anyone could explain electricity. Now, I was tempted to ask that question of you. Just get a few comments back and forth. But I thought that might go into the wee hours of the morning, so. But think about that. If someone asked you to explain electricity, what would you do? How would you explain it? One boy raised his hand. The teacher asked, how would you explain it, Jimmy? Jimmy stretched, scratched his head for a minute, and then he replied, well, last night I knew it, but this morning I've forgotten. <laughs> teacher shook his head sadly and said to the class, what a tragedy. The only person in the entire world that could explain electricity, and he's forgotten. Well, I bring up that little story because that boy's experience in the midst of his fifth grade class really describes yours and mine when we attempt to explain the Holy Spirit's operation in the world, in the church and in our lives. If I were to ask you this morning, explain the Holy Spirit, would you be able to do it? Like electricity, we accept the fact that the Holy Spirit's there, that he's actively operating in our everyday lives, that he is a personal, powerful, and dangerous force deserving our respect, and that without him we'd be severely limited in our ability to function. But when it comes right down to explaining him, we're at a complete loss. Well, maybe not complete, but we're at a great loss, aren't we? We scratch our heads and we mutter something about powerful living, signs and wonders, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, or sometimes if we're a little more biblically versed, we'll even attempt to describe him by one of his given names in the scripture, the comforter or the helper. How would you explain the Holy Spirit? Kind of tough to pinpoint, isn't it? In his excellent book, uh, Flying Closer to the Flame, Chuck Swindoll explains that it's easier for us to understand the concept of a heavenly father because we've all had earthly fathers. Normally, they're the ones in charge. They make the big decisions. They take the ultimate responsibility for what transpires. And although there are exceptions to the rule, it's usually dad who has the final say in things. Identifying the Son of God, similarly, is not that difficult either because he was born like us. He lived in the world as we did. He had parents, he had brothers, he had sisters, he had cousins, he even had a job. Till he was 30. He was flesh and blood. We can understand and picture him. He felt pain, he laughed. He sang songs. He got hungry, thirsty, sleepy. Might have even had to use the men's room once in a while. We don't think of Jesus that way, do we? We can relate to him. For the most part, he was a lot like us. But the Holy Ghost? Chuck Swindoll continues, not even changing his title to spirit helps that much. Certainly, to the uninitiated, the name still sounds borderline weird. Unquote. Now, I remember as a young Roman Catholic boy, when that change from the Holy Ghost to the Holy Spirit happened. You remember that? Probably, if you're in the Catholic Church, you do. I think I was in fifth grade, actually. And I still scratch my head about it. It didn't clarify him any more to me, Swindoll continues. If his name is vague, it's no surprise that most find his work and his ministry the same way. Friends, that ought not to be. As Christians, we should have more of a clue about the Holy Spirit's workings, what he's about, not to mention where he fits into our lives. Because he's in our lives if we are children of God. Amen? And he shouldn't be a mystery to us. In fact, if I understand the scriptures correctly, the bulk of the Spirit's ministry has to do with disclosure, not disguises. Discovery, not concealment. Direction, not confusion. If I understand the plain teaching of the scriptures, the primary function of the Holy Spirit is the unfolding of spiritual truth. Now, how in the world do I know that? 
Well, it's not hard to figure out. You simply go back to the words of Christ as he introduced the person of the Holy Spirit to his disciples. So let's go together back to square one because if we're ever going to understand and appreciate the Spirit's function in our lives, that's where we must start. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16 for a moment. John chapter 16 and verses 7 through 15 we're going to look at. John 16, 7 through 15. Follow along with me. But I tell you the truth, Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Now, Jesus spoke these words just hours before he was arrested and crucified. They're part of his final instructions to his disciples. But he wasn't just lecturing them here. What he was doing was he was encouraging them and empowering them and equipping them. Just flip back a couple of chapters to John 13. I'm going to skip right through back up to chapter 16. I'm going to give you a few verses here. John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Chapter 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father... That is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me. Chapter 16, verse 1. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. Verse 4. But these things I have spoken to you so that when the hour comes, when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because... I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And we take those verses throughout those chapters leading up to the text that we're going to look at today. Jesus was unveiling to them an incredible, incredible promise. Something that was unheard of until then. That after Jesus was gone, another helper, one of the same essential kind as Jesus, would come not only to be with them, but to be in them forever. Not to be taken away, but to be permanent. And his primary function, 
the unfolding of spiritual truth. What truth? The truth about Christ, the truth about Christ's words, his person, his salvation, the truth about sin, the truth about us, the truth about God, the truth about giftedness, ministry, service, scripture, parenting, marriage, dating, etc., etc., etc. He's going to disclose the truth about truth. His ministry is the unfolding of truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help him God. That's the Spirit's ministry. And so Jesus does for the disciples and us what Jimmy couldn't do for his fifth grade class. He explains the unexplainable. Instead of leaving us with abstract ideas, he gives us concrete terms. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, first of all, in verse 7, is a fantastic advantage for believers. Look at verse 7. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I can hear the disciples now. What? Are you kidding me, Jesus? We can't operate without you here. There's no way that we're going to be able to carry on this work. You're the only one who knows the plan. You are the one who calls the shots. You speak and people listen. We've seen it. You're going away? You don't want to hear it. How could that possibly be advantageous for us? Can you hear the disciples saying that? Wouldn't that be your response? Would have been mine. I'm sure of it. And I can relate to how they were feeling. A little bit shaken, a little bit confused, a little bit scared, panicked. I can relate to how they were feeling because I felt that way one day. And it's now ancient history. Some of you know the scenario. You were around when it happened. But the memory now for me is almost as vivid as the day that it happened. I was at home across the driveway eating lunch and Denise was on the phone. And my son, my youngest son Matthew, at the time he was four years old. So that tells you how long ago that was. He'd been playing just outside the door in the yard. And as I finished and got ready to head back over here to the office, I noticed that Matthew wasn't around. I went outside and I called his name a few times. No response. I ran to, over here to the church and there was nothing. No response. Checked the cars, the nursery, the woodshed, all the rooms in the house. No Matthew. Denise and I roamed up and down the yard. We checked all the woods around the cemetery. We went up and down the road. We calling for Matthew. Still no answer. I jumped in the car, drove down the street. Panic attack. You know, the mind starts to imagine what it would be like to call the police, post pictures on telephone poles and on milk cartons, and in newspapers, and back then the internet wasn't a widespread thing. Again, it shows you how old that story is. But y your mind goes there. Imagines the worst. Now normally I wouldn't get that nervous that quickly. But earlier that same morning, get this, on three separate occasions, a very strange thing happened at our home. The doorbell rang. And when my wife went to answer the door, three separate times, there was no one there. And it was hunting season. And strangers were all over this area. And my four-year-old son was gone. There was, to say the least, fear. Confusion. Grief. Emptiness. That's how the disciples must have felt when Jesus said, I'm going away. What they hadn't remembered, however, was, and it's the same thing many of us don't remember, 
when, we, when all we can see is our own crisis and our own grief, is that Jesus promised them that he would not leave them alone. I just read it. I will not leave you as orphans, he said. Jesus was just a prayer away from the disciples at all times. And by the way, so was Matthew. He was hiding on us just one room away from where we first noticed that he was gone. Little wise guy. <laughs> In a place that we never would have thought to look. Just as Denise began to completely fall apart and melt down and called out his name desperately, he showed himself. Lucky for him, we're Christians. <laughs> now, what the disciples needed to understand through their deep, deep sorrow was that Jesus wasn't going very far. And he wasn't going to leave them alone. He was sending them a helper. Jesus always, always acts in our best interest, always. And he's always just a prayer away. He shows himself sometimes at the last desperate minute. But he always has our best interest at heart. Whether we believe it or not, Jesus is the truth, right? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And everything that Jesus says is the truth. And in this verse, verse 7, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. In other words, my going is going to be profitable. It's going to be beneficial to you. Panic, fear, sorrow, confusion, none of those things were Jesus' desire for his disciples, nor are they for you and for me. But only he knew of the advantages of his departure. If he didn't go, salvation would not have been accomplished. His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension had to happen. If he didn't go, the helper wouldn't come, Jesus said. And what a great name that is, isn't it? Look at it in the scripture there. The helper. Think about that for a minute. The King James Version calls him the comforter. The NIV names him counselor. And the Amplified Version, true to form, identifies him this way as the comforter, counselor, helper, advocate, intercessor, strengthener, and standby. That's why they call it the Amplified Version. All of those things are true. But literally, he is referred to here as, quote, the one called alongside of us to assist us, the Greek word is parakletos, which means the paraclete, the one called alongside. He does exactly what Jesus did. The term, the best term, is the term advocate. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it calls Jesus our advocate. It's the same exact word that Jesus used here in verse 7, translated the helper. The Holy Spirit is our advocate. He represents us. He intercedes for us. He pleads our cause for us when we sin. As a standby, he is always present. As our counselor, he is in the business of unfolding truth to us. As our helper, he furnishes whatever assistance that we may need in any given situation. The fact is, it is better that Christ left. Now, that sounds pretty heretical, doesn't it, for me to say that? But it's not heretical. It is Christ's own word to us. It is to your advantage that I go away, Jesus said. What are the advantages? Well, let's just unpack a few. Number one. Jesus' earthly ministry was local. The Spirit's is universal. 
as a man, Jesus could only be bodily present in one place at one time. Yet by the Spirit, he is present in all places at all times, assisting all believers, applying the work of salvation to people all over the world. It's incredible. And I believe that is what Jesus meant in John chapter 14 and verse 12, when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and also greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. Secondly, the earthly ministry of Christ was outward. The Spirit's is inward. Jesus appealed to men and women with his words and with his voice and with his other physical senses. The Spirit's ministry originates from within, appealing to our hearts and our souls and our minds. And we're going to get into that a little bit next week in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Thirdly, the earthly ministry of Christ was temporary. The Spirit's is permanent. John 14 just a couple chapters back, verses 16 and 17 says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you, and he will be with you, and he will be in you. The disciples' relationship with the Holy Spirit was going to be much more intimate and lasting after Jesus left. Let me put it in more relational terms for you. It would be the difference between dating and marriage. The difference between dating and marriage. One writer paraphrased Jesus' words this way, quote, you've been engaged to him during my earthly ministry, speaking of the Holy Spirit, but when I leave, you're going to be married to him. So far, it's been like dating. When I leave and he comes, it will be like marriage. It won't be a distant, formal relationship where the two of you go home separately every night to different places. No, there will be permanent intimacy, a oneness. In fact, he will live in you forever. Now, as I was writing this, I was overcome with the realization that I almost cannot even use that illustration anymore because collectively we have redefined sin and what has come to be acceptable moral behavior among unmarried people. And that, far and away, is one of the saddest commentaries on our society and the church of Jesus Christ. I also believe that it is one of the strongest and prohibitive reasons as to why people cannot even fathom what it means to have an intimate relationship with the triune Godhead and what true spiritual and relational oneness is all about. Listen, the contemporary church has substituted true intimacy with the Holy Spirit with a cheap, superficial, surface relationship that has no depth or substance. Listen to what A.W. Tozer said. Now, this was written not yesterday. This was written like years ago. He says, we may as well face it. The whole level of spirituality among us is low. We've measured ourselves by ourselves until the incentive to seek higher plateaus in the things of the Spirit is all but gone. We have imitated the world, sought popular favor, manufactured delights to substitute for the joy of the Lord, and produced a cheap and synthetic power to substitute for the power of the Holy Ghost. Those are penetrating and convicting words to me as a pastor, to me as a Christian, and to the church at large. 
The Spirit's ministry is advantageous because by the Spirit's ministry and through the Spirit's ministry, Christ could be more to his disciples and they could be more for Christ. There was a personal and practical advantage to this. The disciples would be practically equipped and personally empowered for greater ministry and more widespread ministry through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And that is a fantastic advantage for all believers. John 15, Jesus said, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness. Fast forward now to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Jesus said to his disciples there, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. But the Holy Spirit functions much more than just a fant- as a fantastic advantage for believers. The second thing we find out in this text is that he is a force of conviction in the world. Look at verse 8. Jesus said, when he comes, we'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Conviction. Think about that word. Conviction. The word falls like a gavel on the judge's bench, doesn't it? Conviction. Court is now in session. And humanity is on trial. Prosecuting attorney, the Holy Spirit. He needs no DNA tests, no diagrams, No eyewitnesses. He doesn't need to worry about his evidence being inadmissible for he is presenting God's case against humanity. He presents the factual evidence of our sinfulness, God's righteousness, and the final judgment so convincingly, so accurately, that every possible objection is overruled. There are no excuses. Humanity is guilty is charged. That's part of the Holy Spirit's function in relationship to the world. That's what Jesus said here. He, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He comes to make men and women in the world aware of the truth about sin and righteousness and judgment. First of all, he confronts sin That's what verse 9 says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Like the prophet Nathan, who confronted David with the truth about his own sin, the Spirit comes face to face with people in the world and presents the hard truth about the world's denial of Christ. And the Spirit points the finger right at our consciences before we're saved and says, you know what? You're the man. You're the woman. Not talking about your neighbor. Talking about you. Spirit does have a function outside the church. The Spirit functions in the world. And he brings conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. And what happened to David after Nathan did that to him? David, the man after God's own heart. What happened to him? He fell apart in repentance. And this is the Spirit's function. To expose the facts to prove the world wrong about sinful behavior, the sinful behavior of rejecting Jesus as Lord. And he does it in all kinds of various ways. Through a well-timed word, maybe an action, a book, a song, a sermon, maybe even a deep penetrating look from someone who cares. But I want you to remember something right now as brothers and sisters in Christ Remember this, it is the Spirit that does the convicting, not you and me. 
The Spirit does it. It's not our job to go bashing people about their sin. It's our job to imitate Christ. The Spirit within us will do the convicting. Ever notice how if you are imitating Christ, people don't really want to be around you that are deep in their sin? You don't even have to say a word. You don't even have to look at them. Why is it that when I go into a room and somebody there knows that I'm a pastor, the language cleans up really fast? <laughs> I'm just a regular guy. What do I have to do with it? Nothing. You ever notice that about yourself? When you get around your friends? They'll swear and then they'll say, oh, excuse my French. As if there's some weird equivalent between French language and swearing. You know, I take offense to that. That's the spirit within us that does the convicting. He works on the hearts and minds of unbelievers to show people their need of Christ. It happened when the Pharisees tried to condemn a woman caught in adultery. Remember in John chapter 8? Jesus said one word to them. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone at her. And what does the scripture say? That they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, because they had more sin. And Jesus was left alone with the woman. It happened on Pentecost when, when Peter preached of Christ. In Acts chapter 2. It says that when, when Peter preached the words about Jesus whom they crucified, it says, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? They were pierced to the heart. Peter didn't manipulate them into conviction. The Spirit did the work through the power of the Word. He unfolded the truth through Peter, and applied it to the hearts of the people so intensely that they actually came to Peter and begged him to know what to do for salvation. You ever had people do that to you? What must I do to be saved? You ever have anybody do that to you? I actually have had somebody do that to me. I'm telling you, it is the most amazing experience. You, what? You re now, you don't really want to be saved. Yeah, I do, I do, I do. And there's tears coming down their face, you know. What a powerful experience that is to see the Holy Spirit at work in somebody like that. Amen. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Nothing more, nothing less. He convicts the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me, said Jesus. That is the essence of sin, by the way, rejecting Christ. Unbelief, plain and simple. And all sin falls under this one category. Look at John 15, verse 22. Jesus says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well but they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. It's unbelief. John chapter 3. Turn back a few. John chapter 3, verse 16, beginning in verse 16. Now you know this verse. You can quote it right along with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But now continue on. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. For he who believes in him is not judged. Here's where it starts to kick in. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment that has come into the world. Light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. That's why Christ's own people crucified him. They did not believe. And in the end, it's only through the Spirit's work that people will. That the Jews will. Listen to what Zechariah prophesied 
for the coming nation of Israel. In Zechariah 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, this is still yet to come, the spirit of grace and supplication. Why? So that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And by the way, this is, this is a really good verse to show Jesus' deity. God is speaking. They will look on me, God, whom they have pierced, Jesus, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. This is the Spirit's ministry. You know that a human court can convict a person of murder, but it is only the Spirit of God that can convict him of unbelief. No human court can do that. The Spirit not only confronts sin, but he also confirms the standard of righteousness. In verse 10, back in chapter 16, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. That's kind of a weird statement, isn't it? See, the world has its own standard of righteousness, just as the Pharisees did. It rejects Christ's standard. The world says, forget it, Jesus. We've devised our own ideas of what righteous behavior is. Yours, it's outdated. Forget it. We're going to do it our way. And so on the cross, he's been nailed time and time again by a society which totally rejects and degrades him. And he's not here. He went to the Father. He's not here to point it out as he did when he walked the earth with the disciples. That's what the statement means. It says, the Spirit's coming to convict the world concerning righteousness because I'm not going to be here to do it anymore. I'm going to the Father. The Spirit's going to do it, though, and he's going to do it widespread through the church, my bride, the people who have the Spirit, my disciples. And he confirms it at every turn. The Spirit's function is to confirm that Jesus Christ is the standard and is the source of righteousness. When the Helper comes whom I will send you from the Father, he will bear witness of me, Jesus said. The Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning righteousness, confirming the standard. You know, Luke captured a very vivid snapshot of that kind of conviction as he recorded the words of the dying thief that was crucified next to Christ. In Luke 23, one of the criminals who was hanged there railed at him saying, are, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And the other thief rebuked him saying, don't you even fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Somewhere in the course of those hours on the cross, one of those thieves was convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he came to faith in Christ. That's the heart of a man under conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's a picture of it. His response was a pinpoint response. The core of the gospel came out of his lips on that cross in one sentence. The essence of eternity, wrote Max Lucado, through the mouth of a crook. And this is what basically transpired. This crook said very clearly the confession of faith, I am wrong, Jesus is right. I have failed, Jesus has not. I deserve to die. Jesus deserves to live. That's repentance. The Holy Spirit is a force of conviction in the world. Concerning sin, he confronts it. Concerning righteousness, he confirms it. And concerning judgment, he reminds us of God's final word on it. And that's verse 11. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. In other words, the Spirit condemns Satan and all his works. The cross was the ultimate death blow to the power of sin 
and death. Two areas, by the way, which Satan, the ruler of this world, holds the people of this world hostage. Right? The power of sin, the power of death. People are held hostage by those two things. And without Christ, the fear of death looms over our heads and the stranglehold of sin chokes our attempts to live right. And Satan is the one who wields the power of sin and death. And he wields it well. And you don't have to look far to figure that one out, do you? But the truth is, is that the devil is a defeated enemy. Amen? A defeated enemy. He lost the war. The book's closed. And the court's adjourned. Done. Guilty as charged. The judgment's sure, and the devil has no claim on us. Check it out. Turn to the end of the book. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Verse 7, and when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Book's closed. He's been judged. He's been tried and found wanting, as it were. And the Spirit's function in the world concerning judgment is to point out what took place at the cross. John 12, 31 says, Now judgment upon, is upon this world, Jesus said. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And so, as the cliche goes, the next time Satan reminds you of your past... Remind him of his future. Amen? Because it's certain, as it is for all who follow him. Jesus said, the Spirit serves notice to the world. Judgment is sure. That's his function, among other things. And there were so many other truths that Jesus wanted to communicate to them, his disciples on this occasion, but they couldn't handle them in their present state of mind. Look at verse 12. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Can't bear them now. You know, don't miss verse 12. It's important. Christ teaches us that... We're, he teaches us only as fast as we're able to receive it. He doesn't just back up the theological dump truck and shovel because we couldn't hack it. You want to know where you get that? Trust me on this. I'll tell you where you get it. You get it in seminaries and you get it in Bible college. That's what they do. They try to do that. They back up the theological dump truck and they pour it out and they expect you to get it all in and apply it all. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus takes his time. He did something even greater. He sent us someone who would reveal the truth about the Christian faith little by little. And that's the great thing about the Spirit's function in relationship to the church. Not only is he a fantastic advantage to believers, a force of conviction in the world, but he is truly a voice of direction for the church. Verse 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Francis Chan, in his book, Forgotten God, makes a statement, which I agree with in my own life. He said, you know what? There have been many times when I've tried to lead the Holy Spirit, 
But the irony is, is that the Holy Spirit was given to direct us. He's the guide. He alone shows us the way into the truth. Have you ever taken that at face value? What does it mean? Is it limited to simply the truths of Scripture alone? Many commentators take it that way. But does it mean that he will teach us the truth about every subject on the face of the earth? I believe that here Jesus was specifically referring to the far-reaching truth about himself, his teachings, his predictions, his promises, and most importantly, his approaching death and resurrection as it relates to salvation. The whole New Testament is the fulfillment of the Holy Spirit. It's what he did. It's a fulfillment of what Jesus promised in John 14, 26. When he said to the disciples, the helper of the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. But the Spirit's ministry goes way beyond that to us. When Jesus said his Spirit would guide us into all the truth, I believe that's exactly what he meant. Not that he always reveals all the truth to us. Some things he chooses, not, he chooses not to reveal to us at times. Rather, I think that Jesus was saying that the Spirit guides us into the fullness of truth. All that we need to know about a certain thing. He gave us the truth and he explains it to us. His will for our lives. The truth about people that we have to deal with. The truth about the scriptures and how they apply to every situation that we encounter. His role, I'm convinced, is not simply to repeat the original teaching over and over again, nor is it to reveal something new that doesn't jive with Scripture. His role is to lead us correctly into interpreting accurately Jesus' words, giving them contemporary significance and practical relevance so that we can accurately apply them to our own contemporary life. And this is why on the radio, on First Light, you will hear the goal of that ministry is practical teaching for godly living in contemporary society. That's what the Word of God does. That's what the Spirit of God does. He will never reveal anything new which is not consistent with what Jesus already taught. It has to be consistent with Christ's words and the other, other writers of Scripture. Because the truth of the word of God never changes. It doesn't change. He will glorify me, Jesus said, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. If it doesn't jive with what Jesus has said, it's suspect. Truth doesn't need updating. Doesn't need updating. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to disclose it. Disclose the truth. You ever wonder why unbelievers read the Bible and don't get it? I don't wonder that. Because it's a foreign language to them. Really, it is. The Holy Spirit's the interpreter. Without him, forget it. D.L. Moody once said, the Bible without the Holy Spirit is a sundial by moonlight. It's true. So I'm going to deal with this subject a lot more in depth later in this series, so I'm going to stop here. You're saying, thank you. It's been a long sermon already. Let's just take Jesus' word at face value here. Trust the Spirit to guide you into all the truth. Jesus promised that he would, and he didn't just promise it to a certain select few. Why are church leaders and pastors so afraid of that? Why are you so afraid of that? I'm not afraid of that. If he leads you into, I trust him to lead you into truth. And then you can lead me. See, they used to outlaw Bibles in the ancient early church because of that. Because the leaders in the church wanted to have control over the people. Jesus has control over the people, and he sent his spirit to all the people. No man has a monopoly on truth. Only God can make that claim. And so the last thing is here is his focus of attention is specifically on Christ. Remember, the Holy Spirit will never lead us anywhere but closer to Jesus. 
Friends, if you think that you have your theology all sewn up, neatly packaged, perfectly stacked, we are so, so wrong. And arrogant, I might add. Surely at best our theologies are riddled with holes. We don't have a grasp on all the truth, every nuance of it, but the Spirit does. And He's in the process of carefully guiding us into it, honing our understanding. And rest assured, there's always room for improvement. There must always be room in my heart and in my soul and in my mind for finer tuning. Let me ask you, is there in yours... There's a story that I read some time ago about a German machine tool company that once developed a very, very fine drill bit for drilling holes in steel. Tiny bit could bore a hole, get this, about the size of a human hair. That's pretty fine-tuned. This seemed like a tremendously valuable innovation. So the Germans sent samples off to Russia, the United States, Japan, suggesting that this bit was the ultimate in machining technology. From the Russians, they heard nothing. From the Americans came a quick response inquiring as to the price of the bits, available discounts, and the possibility of a licensing arrangement, of course. But after some delay, there was a predictable, polite response from the Japanese complimenting the Germans on their marvelous achievement, but with a postscript, noting that the German's bit was enclosed with a slight alteration. Excitedly, the German engineers opened the package, carefully examined their bit, and to their amazement discovered that the Japanese had bored a neat hole right through that bit. <laughs> Always got to be room for improvement in our theology especially because the Spirit will bore holes right through everything we think we've got it now. Let's pray. Father, as we go to this communion table and remember your sacrifice that you made to us, we also recall the advantage that you promised to us of the Spirit coming into our lives that you would send, that he would disclose your truth to us. I pray, Father, that he has disclosed truth to each one of us individually this morning. Now, as we enter this celebration of this table, I pray that you would apply it to our lives and our hearts in a very meaningful way. May the Holy Spirit bring to our souls and our minds and our hearts what we need to see in this. If we have sin. May we be convicted by it and repent of it. May it confirm the righteous life of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us that we might apply it. And may it confirm the judgment that is coming one day and the joy that we have knowing that we will never be judged if we believe in Christ. I pray it in his name and for his sake. Amen.